0: Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor cannot anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father Abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will repent he said to him if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead
1: just before we get started let's uh, open in a word of prayer as we turn to God's word and we look at it this morning let's close our eyes Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to come together, to look at your word, to see what you are able to teach us, what we can learn from you. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears to hear and receive and perceive what you're saying, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word and may it challenge us and move us to reflect on what it means to live for you and to serve you. So Lord, we pray that you be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, keep keep your finger there in your Bible at Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. That's a passage we're going to look at this morning. We're carrying on with where we have been uh, for the last while. We're still working our way through Luke. Uh, This is still part of a very interesting section. Uh, we've come out of a bit of this parable teachings and things that Jesus has been doing and uh, now we enter this next little bit where he seems to be telling a story. Uh, it's slightly different to just a parable. It doesn't seem it's straightforward like most the other parables. There's a few things to notice. you have a rich man, uh, but you also have a poor man who gets a name. So unlike most, parables you don't generally have names you have characters and it's the rich man or the poor man but in this case we have the rich man and we have Lazarus Uh, for the sake of having a bit of fun we call the one man Mr. No Name Uh, and then aka Lazarus Uh, there's significance I think in the fact that the one gets a name and the other one doesn't but we can look at that as we go Uh, we've read it you kind of have an idea maybe you've heard it before maybe you haven't given it much thought uh, for me personally, it's not been a, a section that I've given much attention to. Uh, you know the story, it's kind of there in the back of your head, but as soon as you start scratching on the surface, you realize that there is a lot of stuff in this. There's a lot of things being said uh, in this little story. Uh, so as we approach it, we have this rich man, this ruler, he's he's a kingly figure, and when you look at his his character and the way he's living, he he seems to fit the bill in one sense. He's wealthy. He's got an estate. He's got this massive piece of land. He's got gates in front. And uh, as if you had to put yourself in the Jewish mindset, uh, the story seems to be correct. Uh, what I mean by that is, it's something that you would sort of expect. Uh, to understand, expect to see or expect to hear. You have this rich man, if he himself is a Jew, he is sitting in his estate, he's sitting in a good space, he's perhaps healthy, he's well off. um, But also, on the other side, outside of his gate, is a poor man, a man covered with sores, a man named Lazarus. And what's significant about that is you would expect according to Jewish culture, you would expect this man to be sitting outside your gate. It doesn't mean uh, that it's the right thing, but you would expect it because he is unclean. And here's this man sitting outside your gate because he actually can't come into your estate, into your camp. And if you really want to look into those kind of things, you'll, you'll go and see it in, in Leviticus, where it actually paints that picture of when people are unclean, they need to be taken outside of the camp for a period of time so that they can be cleansed before they can come back in. So as you read this from, a, first of all, a Jewish perspective, you'd have this understanding that this sounds about right. The setting looks right, there's nothing problematic about it. The, this man with sores, he's not inside the, this man's estate, he's not unclean within the estate, so everything seems in order, it's all fine. Um, but what it seems like Jesus is doing at the start of this, of this story is he's once again drawing our attention to the Pharisees. Because as the Pharisees would be hearing this story being told, Jesus would be addressing something that they would be agreeing with. And that's why I asked you for a moment just to think as if you were, had to be a Jew. If that was your mindset, your thinking, the Pharisees would be sitting there and agreeing not only would they be, be agreeing, but they'd probably be appealing quite, quite strongly with this rich man's status. He has wealth. And if you jump back to verse 14 of chapter 16, it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Um, so Jesus has challenged the issue of finances and money and what you really think about it, how you respond to it, what, you, what you're considering and how, where your heart is when it comes to finances and money in that sense. And the Pharisees, they were lovers of it. Um, and so as we get to this passage, it, it's appealing. You hear this man, he's wealthy, he's rich, uh, he, he's, he's got wealth. But for, the, for Lazarus, who's sitting at the gate, He's also where he should be. He's in his place. He's outside the city. He's unclean, so that's where he belongs. But as we start thinking about Lazarus uh, for a little bit, a little bit more in, in his situation, we're also reminded that Jesus has already challenged the Pharisees and the people that he's been teaching through the parables. He's challenged them on how they see the sick. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, Luke 14 and verse 1 to 6, and in that section, Jesus is wrestling with the Pharisees saying, what happens uh, if someone is sick on the Sabbath? Do you heal them? Don't you heal them? What do you do with the sick? And then a little bit further on in 14 uh, verse 12 onwards, there's this in, in amazing banquet that Jesus describes, and he says, don't invite your friends, but actually, in fact, invite the poor, the sick, the weak, those who are in need. And so this is the kind of challenge that Jesus already placed further on prior to this section. He's placed it there. And here we have this story. There's now this rich man, this poor man, Lazarus, sitting at the gate. And you have this feeling that uh, Jesus is now going to address once again something along the same lines. Furthermore, you have, just to pick up on the rich man, you have him feasting, this incredible feast. Uh, I think the NIV says it slightly differently, but I I chose the the heading from the ESV, which captures just a beautiful word. So it was my word of the day when I noticed it. It's He feasts sumptuously. Um, So he was extravagantly eating every day. Uh, I don't know who of you eat uh, sumptuously every day with great expenditure to every meal that you have. Um, I don't know if I would be able to, but it sounds really great. So he spared no expense in how he ate. Uh, and if you remember, we looked at the prodigal um, son, that, that whole story and how that unfolded, and how also we do things without considering the cost and we just, exp- we just spend. And so Here we have this this man that is spending like mad while he eats like mad. Uh, And you have poor Lazarus sitting at the gate who longs just for the scraps to fall off this man's table. Um, And I find it such a profound image because here's Lazarus longing for the scraps um, that fall off this rich man's table while the dogs are licking his sores. And you really get a sense of his position he's in. This, this, just the, con- the condition that he's in. And so maybe that f- makes you feel a little bit uh, sure. This, this isn't feeling quite right, but yet keep in mind that this seems to be the right picture that we get. It seems to be the right order of things. The rich living in their grandeur and the poor living in their squalor, uh, lacking things. And because they are unclean, in this case, this Lazarus who has sores that isn't able to be in the city. But from what we learn, from what Jesus has taught up until this point, there seems to be a call. Uh, from, particularly from Luke 14, there seems to be this call to sit with the poor, to eat with the poor, and not to cast them away. Not to just throw them out, and disregard them. And that kind of stops that section, and then the story flips. And so I've put there on your outline, uh, the thing that flips everything is the fact that both of them face death. Nothing can stop it. It is inevitable. They both face death. Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, but it changes after that. Because Lazarus ends up in a different place to what the rich man does. Lazarus, in fact, you have this image of him being restored into a beautiful image, sitting in heaven uh, alongside Abram, whereas for the rich man, he is buried. And that's where he's left. It seems almost so plain And he is buried, and then we find out that he is in torment. And so you have that contrast. You have the roles that reverse. The rich man suddenly finds himself in torment, and you have Lazarus that now finds himself uh, in heaven. He finds himself next to Abraham, in a place where clearly it is the opposite of what the rich man is now facing. And the opposite to what he was facing. And what's interesting to note is that this section, this flip in the story, also shows us something else. That the story tells us that there is this chasm that is put into place, and much like where we where we were early on in the in the term, uh, we read about the door, this door that is put into place, that when the the owner of the house closes that door, there is a divide. And so we come to this point in the story where once more there is a divide put into place, this time a chasm, and it is to divide those that are in versus those who are out. And it is a call at this point for those to hear and those that can hear to be in. But it's not that easy. It's not that easy because we see that we see the, the story unfold with this rich man who begins to plea with Abraham. He sees Lazarus. He sees him sitting there in a good place, good circumstance, and he pleads to Abraham. He's still incapable of recognizing Lazarus. He focuses on Abraham rather than saying anything to Lazarus. And in fact, he still sees Lazarus as this this poor person, this servant, this lowly person that he won't even acknowledge. And in actual fact, what's so bizarre about this next section of this story is how this rich man barks orders. He barks orders to Abram not to do something, but that Abram tell Lazarus to go and do something about it. Lazarus must fix his problem now suddenly he will recognize him, but to do his bidding. And I think there's a level of pride that we can see in that, to, be, to find yourself at a lowly position and still not be willing to recognize how low you've gotten. And here's this rich man who pleads to Abram to ask that Lazarus do his bidding, to help him out of the situation. It's interesting just how the roles have reversed because here's also the rich man sitting now in this place of torment. And what does he ask for? He asked that Lazarus would come and wet his finger and put a drop on his tongue to quench the sensation the burning, the the heat. Now, I don't know who of you, when if you've run a marathon or if you've exerted yourself or sat in the sun for too long, and have become dehydrated, whether a drop on the tip of your finger has actually quenched your thirst. But he is desperate for just something. So in one sense you see this man's desperation, but also you see that he's still got something blocking him. There's something in his way. And it's at this point that he says, he, he calls out, he says, if you can't save me, if I can't be saved, then save my brothers. He's got five brothers that are still alive, and he's not concerned about them. It seems so. And so what he says is, for them not to end up here, please send Lazarus. Send Lazarus to warn them. And so we come to verse 29. It says, but Abram said... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And so I want to pick up on this point because as we work our way through this, this is quite significant in this story. Because here, what Abram is saying is he's saying you have Moses, they have Moses and they have the prophets. And from first glance, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but as you think about it, when we speak of Moses, something might come to mind. If I say Moses, is something popping in your head? A story about Moses? Something significant that he did? Well, perhaps what is popping in your head is the Ten Commandments. Moses is this figure that when you think of him, you start thinking of Ten Commandments, you start thinking of law. He was there in the Old Testament. He was doing all those things. Well, this is significant because often when they are talking about something like this. Like Moses, it's drawing our attention to the law. The law. And alongside, when, it's, when you see something like them saying the law and, Mo- and the prophets, what it draws our attention to is, and everything else. All the prophets. All the things that were written about a hope of a Messiah that will come and save. And so essentially, if you think now about that and you look back, Over the whole of the Old Testament, you have this image of a section of books that kind of capture law and how to live life and how to honor God and glorify Him. And then you have a section of books that are talking about this Messiah that's going to come. So when you see this, it draws your attention to the Old Testament as a whole. Your mind starts going there. So here, essentially, what Abram is saying is they have all that they need they have the law, they have the prophets. They have the Old Testament that is pointing to the coming Messiah. It is They have everything that they need for a relationship and a hope for a Savior. See, God gave the law as part of His act of making a relationship with the nation of Israel. It wasn't a set of laws detached of do's and don'ts, but it was a set of laws to bring them into a relationship with Him. And just like the prophets, God sent prophets to give them a message of a hope about a Messiah that will come to save. And so it's quite profound. It's quite beautiful in actual fact what Abram is saying here is He's saying you have, in one sense, everything that you need. To have a relationship and to come to salvation or hope of salvation. They have it. Everything that they have up until this point is pointing in that direction, a relationship with me and the hope of a salvation. And for a moment, I just want to come back to Leviticus where he speaks about handling people that are cast out, just to show just a little bit more on how God has this heart for a relationship. In Leviticus 14, just to give you an idea, there's, a story, there's, a, there's an explanation of what must happen with a person that has leprosy. And how, they, how they've described it is there's this person that has sores and, and it's, it's severe, and so he becomes unclean. So the, the requirement is for this person to be taken out of the camp taken out of their environment but what's so interesting is if we read through the gospel through this through Luke and through the gospels we kind of get this idea that the pharisees the religious leaders they would cast those people out and have nothing to do with them you don't come close to the unclean you leave them alone but what leviticus seems to tell us is that there was actually something else that was shown Leviticus 14 in actual fact says that when someone is found unclean for having leprosy, they would go out of the village, but the priest would go with. The priest would go with in order to help him be cleansed, to fulfill the sacrifices, to do the rituals, the washings, and all things that could enable this person to come back in. The person that would be taken out of a a town or out of the the city gates would not be taken out and thrown out. In fact, what they would be done is they would be led out, helped, and brought back in. And such a beautiful image that we need to see. So unfortunately, here we have Lazarus and the word that they said is he was laid at the gates, but it's a little bit stronger than that because in this story, Lazarus was cast out. He was thrown out to the point that they didn't want him back. But what we learn is that through, the, through Moses and through the prophets, that there is a different image, one of a leading out a cleansing and a bringing back in. It was not a rejection. It was not a casting away and disregarding. It was a process that needed to take place to invite back in. See in in Luke 16 verse 31 now, Says there, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, the reason why we need to consider what a thing like Leviticus was saying is they fail to hear that. The Pharisees failed to hear it, so when they hear the story, they would automatically go, that sounds right. The man is sitting outside where he belongs because he's unclean. But if we listen to what Jesus has been saying through the parables up until this point, he's saying, no, go out and sit with them. Sit with the sick. Sit with the poor. Sit with those who have nothing. And that is an instruction, not simply what Jesus is giving, but he's drawing attention to the fact that the Old Testament has shown that. That the Old Testament is not disregarding the weak or the sick or the poor, but walking a road with them, sitting with them, being there with them. And so it makes sense when Luke 16 verse 14, it says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And in other times where they would ridicule what Jesus would say. Because for them, they couldn't understand and they couldn't hear. So we get to this section where where this rich man is crying out to Abram to tell Lazarus to go and tell his brothers, his brothers who have Moses and the prophets. And Jesus says, well, what good would it be in this story? What good would it be? Because will they really hear it? Well, we don't need to look far to actually see how these people responded, the Pharisees and the and all the teachers of the law. If you looked, and I'll just read a little section of it, in John 6, verse 35, for example, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not go hungry, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have... So I've said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And then again in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then again, if you want to spend some time there, you can see it in in the notes. In verse 60 through to 71, it's further issues, further grumbling, further unbelief in hearing what Jesus has to say. And this is all before Jesus himself died and rose again. Jesus was simply declaring that he's now come down from heaven, ready to share the good news, ready to share life with people, that they may feast on him, but they couldn't hear it. You see, as we look at this story we see that there is another image that begins to be filled in. That this rich man, unfortunately where he failed, uh, Jesus comes to show what you ought to be doing. You see, this rich man, he sat in his home, comfortable with his wealth, with his riches. But when you look at Jesus, Jesus gave up, his seat and exited through the gates of the kingdom of God and entered into this world to sit with us, the poor, the broken, the weak, the wicked, those in need. Jesus left his kingdom and he shows us that what this rich man should have done is got off his seat and gone and sat next to Lazarus at the gate But we see the outcome of the story. The man held on to what he had. Like we hold on to what we have. And it becomes too uncomfortable to give up things. To let go in order to serve and to sit with the broken, the hurting. Those that are struggling. It's too uncomfortable to get out of your own seat at home in front of the TV. And go and sit with someone that is mourning or struggling or sitting on the side of a street now i'm not saying that that's the answer everybody must not get up and go and do that but i think there is an there is a important reminder that we need to get out of our little kingdoms and to go and sit with the broken and to share jesus christ with them to share the bread of life with him you see jesus demonstrates what this rich man should have done but not only that but he proves that the story is true he proves that abraham's warning to this rich man is true because Abram says to, to them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And this man tries to resist it. And he says, And, and he said, No, Father Abram, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, Jesus, Jesus was sharing something here that he proves later. Jesus was showing us that even through his death, like Lazarus died outside of the gates, Jesus was outside of the gates and he died. He was cast out, rejected, rejected. Despised, very much like Lazarus in this story. And though Lazarus didn't rise again in this story, we know of another Lazarus that rises. I don't know the not clear on the connection, but in this case, Jesus rises again. And what happened? People struggle to believe. People fail, fail to hear Moses and the prophets. We fail to look at the Old Testament and see how, in fact, that points to this incredible coming of Jesus Christ calling us into a relationship. Today, we still don't want to look at the Old Testament as we should and see how incredible it is that it is pointing to Jesus Christ. Thousands of years, like from from when it all took place, we still can look back and see how that picture was unfolding. But for some reason we think, I just need to focus on Jesus. But God's word is so precise that from the very start of it, right through to the end of the Old Testament, it is pointing to Jesus Christ and God's desire for a relationship with the people. In the New Testament, we have that Messiah. Savior that came into the world and that did what He said people would not believe. He died and He rose again. And people still today can't believe that. My question is maybe this. Do you struggle to believe that? Do you struggle to believe that Jesus Christ in fact rose from the grave. He rose again. And that as we look at him now, there is an invitation for us still to enter. There is still a hope to enter into what he has to offer. But know that there is a chasm. And if you don't choose, there is no undoing of that chasm. When that door shuts, there is no opening of that door again. The invitation is now. You can either get up, hear what he says, and follow him. And in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our poor condition, we are able to sit at the table with him and feast with him. Or we can reject that. We can continue to live our lives the way we want to, pursuing what we want, how we want, when we want, and find out that when that door is closed, that there is no hope. Jesus Christ is inviting us to sit with him, I've put there, there is a sumptuous feast that awaits those who are broken and contrite of heart, who hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a sumptuous feast that waits. And the reason I've used that is God has spared no expense for us to be able to have that feast with Him. Because He paid the greatest price sending His Son so that we can feast with Him. So there is a call for us to come and sit with him. But you need to give up your sumptuous feast that you're holding on to. Whatever it is in your life that you're clinging to, rather than longing for what he is offering. We need to give up that. Give it up to him. Say, Lord, I've been holding on to this because I think that it might be better than the feast that you have in store for me but it's only once you've given up your seat at one feast that you can go and sit in the seat at the real feast. I've never seen someone be able to sit at two feasts at the same time or two seats at a table. If you, if you do that, I think it's quite selfish. But to actually get up out of your seat, wherever you're at, and make that decision, that conscious decision that is driven by a desire in your heart to sit with Him Because that's where He is. That's what He has done. He entered this world to sit with us. He rose again. Are you willing to believe that He did? I've been reading a book recently. uh, Just a guy telling his few little stories of how he's experienced love and God's love. Um, His name is Bob Goff. But he makes a really... Wonderful quote. And as he reflects through his life, he says this, I used to think religion tasted horrible, but now I know I was eating the fake stuff. Uh, And it's so true. Maybe something that you're holding on to, that you're eating, you're enjoying it, but you realize that it actually doesn't taste that great. Mm, There's a bitter taste in, in your mouth at the end of it. It may be because you're eating the fake stuff. I want to take it one step further it says, so I said that when you are feasting on the fake stuff it's not just horrible but it's deadly poison because that's not going to save you that's not going to get you to sit at a seat around that table with our heavenly father and in fact it leaves you like the rich the rich man in torment Forgotten with no name. It's significant because we are given a name for Lazarus who enters into God's kingdom, but the rich man gets forgotten. He has no name. His identity, his name, is marked by the thing that he feasted on. It was his possession, the thing that he held on to most. That's his identity. Whereas Lazarus seems to get named and gets to be seated with everybody else that has through the generations believed. So what do you want to be named? What do you want to be remembered for? For what you hold on to? Is that what you want to be labeled as or do you want one better than that? That you are adopted into God's kingdom with a new name as you sit feasting with our Lord and Savior, the true King. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we need to be reminded that so easily we get caught up in pursuing things or holding on to things that actually have no future for us. Whether it's our health, whether it's our possessions, whether it's Financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's whatever it is, Lord, we we tend to hold on to things more than we want to hold on to you, Lord. So help us to see that in Christ we are free to let go. We are free to let go, not because we will then be out of control, but that we are then resting in your control and your goodness and your love. And not only that, but then we can enter into a feast with you. a feast that is far more sumptuous than anything that this world can offer, a feast that has no end, and that we get to spend our lives with the one who spared no expense for us. So, Lord, we we thank you, we thank you for the reminder but help us to work these things through our hearts and our heads that we may really reflect on the condition of our hearts as we think about you and as we think about what it means to serve you and to love you Lord forgive us where we are we are caught up in our own desires and that we get to, that we fail to actually see what you're inviting us to lord help us not to fear the letting go but to desire the feast that lies ahead i pray this in jesus name amen